0: We believe that alcoholism is a disease and that Alcoholics Anonymous is one solution to that disease. I'm here to bring you the voices of its members. Everyone that comes on the show, including myself, is an active member and has found recovery in the rooms of AA. As you listen, please take what works for you and leave the rest. Okay. I'm so happy to hear your entire story. Will, thank you for joining me. My name is Tara. I'm an alcoholic, and we are going to listen to your experience, strength, and hope. I'm going to turn it over to you. You'll share your name and your sobriety date, your story, and then I'll ask you a couple questions.
1: All right. Well, my name is Will. I'm I am an alcoholic, not I am an alcoholic. Uh and thank you Tara for uh asking me to do this. This I've never done this before and it, it's you know something new in sobriety is always something fun to do, I find. So, um I'm I'm going to start with my uh my history and uh my experience and uh, I'll go all the way back to childhood. Uh, I grew up in a town, the name of it's Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and yeah, we talked funny back there, um, but the thing I like to, to relate when I talk about my alcoholism is going back to my heritage and where I grew up. Um, Wisconsin in general, alcohol is not only very readily available everywhere, but it is socially totally acceptable. Um we have things called corner bars. Um I literally lived in like a neighborhood, you know, with all houses, no stores at all. However, if I would walk down 3 houses and cross the street, I could go into the corner bar which was in our residen- residential neighborhood and go and actually go as a 4 or 5 year old, go up with my quarter And buy baseball cards or bubble gum or whatever. And there's my neighbor, the neighbor, adults are sitting at the bar and drinking. And that's uh, Wisconsin. I saw an article a couple years ago where they listed the top 20 most alcoholic cities in the country. I think 11 of them were in Wisconsin, Um, all of them within 60 miles of my hometown. And of course, my hometown was included. <laughs> so um, alcohol is just a, a big part of life. And I can't tell you when I had my first drink. I can tell you there's a picture of me sitting on my uncle's lap on my first birthday party. He's drinking along that neck beer, and I have one in my lap, and I have my mouth around the, the neck of it. So, um, we probably, mom probably gave us brandy anytime we had, a, uh, any kind of ailment and that sort of thing. So I just grew up with alcohol. It was all around. Um, my parents drank, drank quite a bit, became alcoholics later in life. Um, this is a progressive disease. Uh, I don't think they were always alcoholics, but they sure were at the end. And, um, uh, so I had it alcohol not only available but uh but through the years I drank little bits here and there but the thing I like to share is the time that alcohol changed my life and it was early in high school it was in September it was a Friday night I can remember it like it was yesterday and I jumped in a car we there was an away football game and uh jumped in a car and someone brought a bunch of beer and uh It changed the way I thought about myself. I loved what it did to me that day, that night, and uh, from then on, I wanted that feeling. I chased that feeling for 27 years. Uh, Sometimes I'd get little glimpses, um, but what alcohol did, it became my solution to life. Uh, When I grew up, I I grew up in a—I should share—I grew up in a church, a Lutheran church— I was always um, very, very much a believer of Jesus Christ growing up. I, I liked going to church pretty much. I, um, but once, once that moment alcohol kicked in in high school, everything changed. Uh, I had been pretty much a straight-A student. I was very much involved in athletics. I did all the sports, depending on the season— summertime was baseball time, fall was football time, uh, basketball was in the winter, and I ran track in the spring, and that's what I did, um, and as soon as that that evening happened, pretty much sports, at least organized sports, went away, except for the stuff that I could do, like softball with my buddies, because we could drink and smoke pot before the games and, and after the games and whatever, um, but Everything changed, and I loved what alcohol did. I was uh, always uptight, uh, uncomfortable in my own skin is what Alcoholics Anonymous likes to call it, and the solution came when I drank, and it took away all that nervous tension and that churning in my stomach. I lived with this churning in my stomach, uh, which— yeah you know, I probably could have been diagnosed with a stomach problem. It's kind of funny, my son right now once in a while uh in the last couple of years has suffered with stomach problems, and the problem was when he was going through a divorce and and everything else and it turns out that it was all psychological and it was all you know nerves basically well alcohol uh provided my solution and uh So I I did a geographic early in life. I uh, went to college outside of the state of Wisconsin because I figured if I went to the University of Wisconsin with my buddies, I I was already worried about my drinking being too much. So I went to a school, uh, Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa, that I thought that would be safe. And by the end of my first week of school— I had been elected uh, pledge class president to what I like to call Animal House, if you ever saw the movie, um, because our, on pledge night, I think we had 10 kegs of beer, um, we finished nine of them, and uh, it was just, the place was crazy, and so I lasted in that fraternity for uh, a semester, because I would have dropped out of school. Um but I continued. I continued drinking, and mostly through college years, it was you know it was the the type of drinking you expect in college, right? I binge drank sometimes, but uh, you know, was able to maintain life. And then uh, graduated from college, took my first job, got transferred to uh, the Bay Area. My first job was in Palo Alto, California, and put on a three piece suit, went to work tried to, and my job was uh, working for the Maytag company. I was a regional representative and I would go to these appliance store owners and sell them on my programs and whatever. And here I am, this, you know, 22, 23 year old kid and, you know, all dressed up and, you know, they're all looking at me like, kid, you have no idea what you're doing. Um, So I would come home from work and instead of you know, college years, now was an adult, so cocktail time, right? Immediately, I came home and would drink a few, and for me, a cocktail was a tall tumbler full of booze. Um, so drinking wasn't really my problem yet. Um, it was still my solution, but it continued and continued, and it, it became, now I had a little money in my pocket, and it became a daily thing, And like I said, I drank for 27 years, and it progressed and kept going. Um, I moved from Palo Alto. I I actually moved jobs, got into—since I was in Silicon Valley, I took a job with an electronics distributor company, and I was a salesman for them. I did very well. They promoted me, moved me to Denver, Colorado, to open a new branch for for their company. And unfortunately, the economy and everything, it didn't work out and uh I changed jobs I got into the uh medical industry I got into selling surgical products, which was a wonderful career change, but it was just brought on- ab- about because of um economic conditions really and uh from there on um, i i had been uh i got married when I was a senior in college. we had two kids um but once I moved to Colorado, I found a new best buddy, and he was the alcoholic. Um, this guy was truly an alcoholic, and he was a big guy. He drank all the time, drank a tremendous amount of alcohol. And so I loved being his buddy and hanging out with him, and we did lots of fun stuff together, uh, went to a couple Super Bowls together, and and uh, had some great times, I guess, but the marriage was falling apart. I was working, I was drinking, and I was playing golf and didn't have a whole lot of time for the family. And finally, my wife sat me down. She said, you know, I've got you, I've got my job, and I've got the kids, and I only got room for two of them, and you're out. So she divorced me, and that it was in that time period, and that was around 1990 where I lost my marriage. She moved the kids out to the East Coast. I lost uh, the house. We basically had to give up because of the economy. I lost my job. Actually lost two jobs that year. Um, and I didn't even know it, but I had been fired because of uh, they gave me some excuse. But I found out later on they they caught me drinking on the golf course one of the uh, execs lived on the same golf course I did and uh, saw me, and that was uh, called my boss, and that Monday morning I was fired and never found out about it until three years later. That guy took over the company I had now gone to, and he told me the story. He said, this is why you're fired. <laughs> you're drinking on the golf course, and you're supposed to be working, and your numbers weren't very good either, so— Uh, So it just progressed and it progressed. Now, that would have—most people think their their bottoms come when they lose things. Well, I had lost my marriage. I had lost my kids. I had lost my house. I had lost two jobs. That was not my bottom. My bottom came about eight years later, I believe, and that's after I had done a couple more geographics. I had moved to Seattle— and married ex-wife number two and lived with her for six years. And, and as that marriage was collapsing, we moved back to uh, the Bay Area, took a job, uh, got transferred down there. And all this time I was maintaining my work life pretty much, but the alcohol was a daily thing and had totally taken over. It was just constant thoughts of getting through the day so that I could get to where I could drink again. And there were even times where I would just stay home, work out of my home office, and those days it was drinking even uh, sometimes in the morning just to get rid of the shakes or a little wine at lunch to uh, chill out a little bit and those types of behaviors. So even my work life was really suffering at that point. And it just progressed and progressed. And finally, when I was, uh, I was living in Clayton, California, over near uh, Walnut Creek, and one morning I woke up and I had been getting physically sick for months. Literally, I would get up in the morning, and if I didn't throw up right away by the time I brushed my teeth, then I would. And I'd usually just try to go in the shower and, you know, throw up in there, whatever. And this was ongoing, and my liver was starting to give out. And I, you know, I had no idea what to do. My life was centered around alcohol. It always had been centered around alcohol. It says in the big book, it says there comes a point where you can't imagine life with alcohol, but you can't imagine life without alcohol and that's the jumping-off point. And I woke up one morning, and it was incomprehensible demoralization is what it's called in the book. And I had that incomprehensible demoralization. I had been wishing to die, but I was too chicken to think about suicide or anything like that. But I was hoping, I literally was hoping to get cancer or something so I would die. And I woke up that morning, and I had no idea what to do, Uh, I had a church bulletin, and on the back of it, it said, if you have an alcohol or drug problem—I think it said drugs, but I know it said, if you have an alcohol problem, call this number. And I called that number, and someone told me to get over to the Concord Fellowship for a noon meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I had no idea. I had really no idea about Alcoholics Anonymous. I walked into that meeting, and that was the last time I went to the Concord Fellowship. However, But— that meeting, someone talked to me, thank God, and they told me, you know, there's a beginner's meeting over in Walnut Creek at 6 p.m. tonight. Why don't you go to that? So I did. I had some desperation now, and that's what it takes. It takes desperation. It takes a bottom. I truly believe that, whatever that bottom is. And the desperation got me to that meeting, and then at that meeting, they said, you know, the real meeting is at 8 o'clock. And that's when all the guys, it's a huge men's meeting. So I went to that meeting. And at that meeting, they said at the beginning of the meeting, they said, is there anyone here who doesn't have a sponsor? And I was pretty, you know, I'm young, naive, and stupid. And so I raised my hand because I didn't have a sponsor. And uh, after the meeting, someone walked up to me and said, here, I'm going to find you a sponsor. And he went over and, and said, here, this is your new sponsor, Bill. So Bill became my sponsor. Um, I still, to this day, I carry around a picture of Bill. Here's Bill <laughs> um, from his memorial service, and Bill and I became best friends. Bill was from Wisconsin, also. Uh, Bill was one of the smartest men I ever knew. He was had his PhD and and taught at Berkeley for a while. He was the uh, clinical—he was the research director at a huge biotech company, Um, just the most intelligent scientific mind you've ever met. And Bill was the one that took me through the steps the first time, and he had come in as agnostic, not believing in God at all. Bill taught me a whole new relationship with God. And that's what Alcoholics Anonymous has done for me. Um, it, My sobriety is totally God-given. Now, there's things I have to do to keep it. A lot of people walk into this program, and they're able to stay sober from day one. I'm not one of those, uh, and I'm not proud of it. I wish I was, but I had— at least four relapses in the first year and a half of going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I like to relate. The only thing I did right was I didn't, I kept going to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't go enough. I didn't go as, you know, as often as they told me to go. And I didn't follow a lot of instructions, but I kept my foot in the my toe in the water long enough. I kept around long enough for the miracle to happen. And so eventually I started doing the steps, and after suffering a few relapses, I realized—and for me, this is what it took—but I proved myself I was truly an alcoholic. And I had to accept the fact—because every time I drank, my relapses would—within two to three days, I was, I was totally gone. I mean, I could take maybe one or two drinks that first day, but the obsession, the mental obsession led to— and then once that alcohol got into me, I could not stop. And so after proving that to myself a few times, I finally had my last relapse, which started on a— I guess you would call it a resentment. I put my kids on an airplane to go back east— uh, and it was like about December 27th or 28th or something like that. Oh no, no, it was the 28th or 29th because, uh, and then I went out and, uh, started drinking. There was some beer in the fridge cause I was still married to ex-wife number two at the time and she drank. And so I started with that and I ended up running out and getting myself a half gallon of brandy and, um December 31st which happened to be a Sunday evening and of course is New Year's Eve but to me it wasn't New Year's Eve it was just a Sunday evening and at 6:30 I was just about through drinking that half gallon of brandy sitting in my office no glass no ice just drinking out of the plastic bottle and something happened and I I was living in a two-story house at the time. I walked down to the kitchen. She was actually sitting at the kitchen table, and I took that bottle, thank God I was plastic, and I threw it into the sink, and I said, I'm done. I'm done. And that was my last drink. Now, call it what you may. I call it my uh, moment of clarity or a miracle of some sorts, but the I, and I didn't know it that night or the next day or whatever, but or maybe not even for a few weeks. But I realized weeks later that all of a sudden, that hanging on, trying, trying my willpower to my best, trying not to drink, the obsession had been taken away. I was not fighting it anymore. I was. It was just had been lifted. And I've now been sober. That was on um, uh, that was December thirty first of two thousand. So my sobriety date is January first, two thousand one. My sponsor, through my relapses, said a few times, he says, "Why don't you get a sobriety date you can remember?" And once I got one, one oh one, I knew I better hang on to that one. But uh, it's not really because of that; it's because the obsession was lifted. Now, I know today that there are things I have to do, otherwise that obsession could come back. And it's it says, we you know, um, we have a daily reprieve, and it's based on our spiritual condition. So I know I have to work on my spiritual condition, and that's a major part of Alcoholics Anonymous. For me, that looks—well, I'll get to that a little bit, but— um so it I so I was able to start staying sober. I was start able to do the things I needed to do. I got through the steps. I did the things. I started sponsoring other people. I did the things that we need to do in alcoholics anonymous calling other alcoholics and all those wonderful things that help keep us sober. Um and I was able to uh I had been sober I guess about 4 or 5 years. And things were going very well. I had met a woman through church, actually, and the, a wonderful woman who was a normie and, uh, and had lost her husband through uh, pancreatic cancer a few years earlier. And we were married, and life was getting very good. And then I got the diagnosis of having brain cancer. And I went, and I did whatever they told me to do. Um, finally having, uh, what they call a craniotomy to have the biopsy done, take part of your brain out to find what it is. And it was grade three brain cancer. And so I like to relate this part of my story because I loved the interaction I had. My, my, uh, neuro-oncologist became one of our best friends. And we would have these appointments where you go see a doctor, you know, what is it, maybe 15 minutes and they kick you out of the office. We would literally stay in there for hours talking. And one day she finally said to me, she said, Will, there's something that you're doing that I don't know what it is, but you're totally different than all the rest of my patients. You're doing something or whatever. What is it? And I said, I said, I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been sober X amount of years, and I'm using the program of Alcoholics Anonymous to fight the brain cancer. And it's you know it started with acceptance, and it's it starts and you work through it. Okay, what do I have to do? Be useful, whatever. Um, and I used I I pride I applied the same things uh, to the brain cancer as I had to alcoholism. And uh, I had to go through about a two-year period, 15 months of chemo treatments, uh, two months of radiation treatment. Uh, Of course, I did have the surgery, but they couldn't remove it all. And also a clinical trial that I did in San Francisco, where I would go every two weeks and get an infusion. And I I had been trying to work through all this, I uh, had some time off after the surgery, went back to work, finally got a call from my boss. And he said, Will, how are you able to work through all this with all the treatments you're taking? And I said, well, boss, at the moment, I'm sitting in a chair at the hospital and I have an IV in my arm. So I'm not really getting a lot of work done today, if you want to know the truth. And And he said, you know what? why don't you call HR tomorrow and talk to them? And I did. And she gave me her cell phone number, said, and the next day was a Saturday. And she said, call me at home. So I did. I didn't know what was up. But I called her at home on Saturday. She said, okay, you're done working. We're going to put you on long-term disability. You have a policy. We'll pay you. Um, and your career's you know you're done working that was that was you know a lot of people plan a lot for retirement that was my retirement plan was a saturday afternoon phone call to hr and i went from thinking all you know being all in as far as a sales rep and being a fairly successful sales rep to you're done working and i was wondering what i was going to do with the rest of my life and the answer came really easy to me. Um, it was Alcoholics Anonymous teaches us that we have to put things. And I had a, one of my old sponsors, Mark B., uh, which you know very well. And Mark, Mark's keyword if there were things that I had certain sponsors that had keywords, my first sponsor, Bill, motives. Will, what's your motive? Well, Mark, it was always action, right? You got to get into action, not only in Alcoholics Anonymous, but outside of Alcoholics Anonymous, and changing your lives. The 12-step talks about practicing these principles in all our affairs, not just, you know, working with other. The first part of is working with other alcoholics, and that's great, but we have to practice these principles in all our affairs, and that's putting. The program into action, in the rooms and outside of the rooms. So, um, so today my life looks like getting up in the morning, having a couple cups of coffee, reading the paper a little bit. But my feet at eight thirty walk me out just like I'm going to work, except I drive uh, drive to a meeting, and throughout the week that's what I do every morning unless I have something else that I have to do or planned uh, I'll go to a meeting and it's a great way to get my day started it also it's amazing how many uh, beat up people you find out you find at 9 a.m. meetings on a weekday because those people are you know struggling they just lost their jobs or whatever it's a great place to find new people to work with Uh, but for me it's a uh, it's a new part of my life. It's how I've changed my life, and it's how it has changed me. Um, Mary and I have been married now 13 years and have a wonderful marriage, and I can't imagine—she has never seen me take a drink, and I, actually, I know she wouldn't have looked twice at me if if I had been drinking at the time, um, and our lives is, is, is terrific, but Today, I mean, I probably do more in Alcoholics Anonymous today than I ever have, because it is not only our physical sobriety that's important, but that emotional sobriety that's really important to me today. And that, along with my spiritual life, is what guides me and what keeps me happy, sane, and sober. And so many things are going on in particular with Mary's family. My son just got married yesterday in Maryland, and it was circumstances that were not optimal, let's just say. Um, I would have liked to be there, and we thought we were going to go to a wedding next summer, and then all of a sudden he changed his mind last week and decided we're going to get married now. And I asked, why? He said, why not? Um there's so many issues in life that I can look at today and it doesn't drive me crazy like it would have in the past. Economic insecurity, economics drove my life for years and years and years. Today, I can look at situations where money comes up and it's not a big deal anymore. And it's all because of practicing the principles in all our affairs. And I am so grateful that uh, have this program to fall, to to live every day. Uh, that I can now feel comfortable in my own skin. I, that turmoil in my stomach—the only time I get that is if I'm really hungry. <laughs> but it's gone. It's and I am so grateful for Alcoholics Anonymous. And thank you, Tara, for asking me to share this today. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you for sharing your story. I've heard bits and pieces, and now I've heard comprehensive breakdown of what you went through. Certainly, you've mentioned the brain cancer Mm -hmm. and tracking this. How many years were you into sobriety when that went down? I'm not sure I caught that.
1: Okay, so I got sober. Well, I started in 99, but I got sober in 2001, got the brain cancer in 2009. So I'd actually been sober eight or nine years already when, when that all happened and so that was 10 years ago. So obviously I'm coming up now on 19 years of sobriety.
0: Right, right. Your math is faster than mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I always love hearing you talk about it because it connects to your higher power and your your belief system and i really appreciate you going there today mm-hmm. i was hopeful i did have an expectation of mm-hmm. that and it was fulfilled well that's uh, good
1: that's right cuz you know what happens when I, we have I know. expectations <laughs> i know
0: what did uh, mike said last saturday he said expectations are just the stupidest thing <laughs> and i thought that's just so well said <laughs> no good yep um, what i what stood out for me and made me um, coil a little bit was remembering that mental obsession that you talked Mm. about. So there was the, I have to prove to myself I can drink. I have to prove to myself that I can do this. And it was clear that, yeah, I can probably stop drinking after one or two and I can probably maintain that for a long time. But the mental obsession, it was, I couldn't do or enjoy anything else. It was, it had me. Right. So once I got some It's space, literal
1: hell, isn't yeah, it?
0: It's in your head yes. and you can't you can't You're it's,
1: in prison. That's what I call my prison. When we used to have that mental obsession, it was always even when I remember like sitting at a table, if there was a bottle of wine in my drinking years, it was, you know, and there were glasses in front of everyone, it was always looking at everyone's glass. Right. I mean, I couldn't concentrate on the on the dialogue and the conversation or anything. It was always geared around looking at those glasses and when am I, how much can I have? And it was just the mental obsession that drove us and it'll drive us crazy.
0: Yeah. The you had mentioned getting through your day just to get to the drink. Mm-hmm. And I don't miss any of that. Yeah. I don't miss any of that. Anytime there's any it just think it all the way through. Yeah, you know, I don't go around wanting to drink, but I don't engage or flirt with those thoughts anymore, but I immediately stop them with remembering the truth of the matter, mm-hmm. which is how terrible it really was cuz part of my brain can can try to sweet talk me. And I just don't let it. I have to go to those bad... You do. That mental obsession was the worst. Yep. It was the worst. And I can do that now with beating myself up or not letting things go. You talk about acceptance and surrender when it came to your brain cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and That's the same practice that I, in all of our affairs, accept and surrender. And life is so much smoother. The... um. What is that? You also talked about it became the solution in your life. Mm. And I heard a quote recently wa- that was, um, if you have problems in your life that are related to alcohol, you may be an alcoholic. If alcohol is a solution to your problems, you are an alcoholic. <laughs> I had not heard that before, but yeah. it's so accurate.
1: Very accurate. Yeah. Yep. And alcohol was certainly the solution for all of my problems, Right. Right. And but then what you were talking about, that obsession kicking in, you know, once I had a drink, the obsession kicks in that I have to have more. And it became it became prison. Right. But for me, that is prison. And that's the prison I was in. And I didn't realize it until it got really worse and worse and worse until I couldn't live that way anymore. And I didn't want to be in prison anymore. But I didn't realize there was a way out, right? Right. And this is a great way out.
0: You can't live with it, and you don't know how to live live without without it. it. Come to the rooms of AA. Yep. With that, let's close with what you have to say or what you could say to the alcoholic listening that's still suffering in silence. Has been to the rooms or has not ever been to the rooms?
1: The one thing I would say, and as I mentioned I didn't get it right away. Um, You may not hear the message right away, but at least give it a chance. Now, there's other ways to get sober. Alcoholics Anonymous doesn't have the patent on getting sober. I'm not going to say it does. But for me, my experience, it certainly does work. And if if you're new and you're struggling with it, At least give it a chance and give it a good chance. Stay around long enough and let the miracle happen.
0: That's very well said. Thank you, Will.
1: Mm -hmm. You're welcome.
0: For more information, read the first 164 pages of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous or visit keepcomingback.net.